Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another Run Culture podcast episode. Today, I'm fortunate to be chatting to a return guest of the show, Brody Sharp. So Brody's a fellow running physio and also the host of the incredibly popular and highly informative The Run Smarter podcast, a podcast designed to help runners overcome and prevent running injuries. He's also a passionate runner himself and the owner of the Breakthrough Running Clinic, where he offers online physiotherapy consults for runners of all abilities. Welcome to the podcast, Brody. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, no, no worries, mate. Um, it's great to have you on the show today. And today we had a topic that we're both really interested in as running physios and enthusiastic to talk about. Uh, we wanted to talk about pain and pain science and whether the degree of pain that runners are feeling um, relate, how, how closely it relates to the degree of pathology or injury um, that they've got. Uh, do you want to kick off uh, the chat about talking about pain and, and uh, yeah, how important um, pain is um, for our, I suppose, survival as runners and, and why we have pain? Sure. I think, have you decided on a, t a title for this episode? Because we can do it like a pain with Dane. I think I like, <laughs> it kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it rhymes. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so I think the the general concept that people need to understand when it comes to pain is how relevant, how closely we should pay attention to signals and how to interpret those pain signals because or, and exactly where the, the pain signals are coming from. And I do have a couple of episodes on my podcast where I describe this. And the first concept that people need to understand is that all pain is generated from the brain. It's not generated from the limbs or wherever the pain signal, wherever you think that pain is coming from. It's the brain's responsibility to evaluate all the information that it receives and then it has to make the decision of how much output, how much signals, how much um, pain levels we need to um, we need to emit to get us away from danger. And so, let's just say, for example, um, you uh, you get a bee sting on your finger, and you you think that all the pain is coming from the finger because that's where um, you you notice the pain. But really, what's happening is the brain thinking, okay. There's a bee sting on my finger. It, let's gather as much information that we know. What do we know about bee stings in the past? Um, how how much danger are we in because of this bee sting? What effect might this have for our future outcome moving forward? And let's, uh, well, how much damage can we see with our eyes visually? What can we see? And let's emit a pain signal based on all that evaluation. And let's just say, 
uh, I have this book called Explain Pain, which ex actually looks at a bee sting, and they say that if someone is a violinist, they're going to experience greater pain with that bee sting to the finger than someone who's a soccer player because the context is totally different. The same, the bee sting is exactly the same, but the context, the beliefs, the past experiences, and the future outcome is going to be completely different. So someone who is a violinist will think it's a bee sting. Okay. Um, will this impact my ability to play? Will this Im impact my career for the short term while it's in pain? Like I might have a concert later on today. I might have a performance to do later on today. What about if I can't do that? Oh my God, this bee sting is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, and the brain is going to take on those thoughts, take on those beliefs, take on the, um, those future outcomes and be like, yes, this is a big issue. We're in big trouble here and we'll emit more pain than someone who's a soccer player to be like, ah, oh, it's a bee sting. Yeah, it hurts, but it's not affecting my income. It's not, it's going to, it's going to be totally fine. I've had bee stings before and I've got over them within a couple of hours. It'll just settle. And the brain, you know, is uh, aware of that, aware of those thoughts. And I'll be like, yeah, it's okay. Let's just um, admit a little bit of pain and we'll take it from there. So we can apply this to any sort of injury that we do have. We can apply this to any sort of sprain or trauma that we do have. And that's like the actual injury itself is just one bit of information, how we process it and the, the pain signals that are delivered all comes from the brain. Um, I'm not sure if you thought the same when it comes to like treating a uni and like the stuff we learned at uni, but I didn't learn any of that kind of stuff. Um, what do you, what do you nah, think? No, nah, when I went through uni, um, I definitely didn't understand pain that way at all. Um, it was only, um, probably, uh, the last four or so years. I, I, I think that I've sort of really, um, like I, I did a bit of extra study, um, uh, grad cert and they, they covered pain science and it, it opened my eyes that, okay, well the brain is more involved. Um, and then they, the, the example that really clicked with me was the, with amputees, how, you know, they're missing, like say they've got a below knee sort of amputation and then they're, they're missing, um, their foot, but they still have an itchy foot or they still bump their foot on things. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a clear sort of example that, um, there's a bit more going on and, um, yeah. it, it must be coming, you know, from, from your brain. It's, ex it's a perfect example. And, uh, if anyone wants to Google phantom limb, it's a phenomenon that they've known for, you know, hundreds of years and exactly right. There's people that have had amputated limbs and then they still get sometimes pain from that amputated limb. It's like, oh, I feel pain in my left big toe, but the leg isn't there, but that's what they, that's the sensation that they feel. And that is a perfect example of, well, it can't be from the tissues themselves because the tissue isn't there, but you still experience exactly the same amount of pain that you would have experienced if that foot was there. And so, yeah, yeah. A, a perfect example. And so like the other example that um, came to mind when you were talking was um, when you see sort of a toddler or, you know, a young sort of two-year-old or baby um, running along or walking along or, and then they fall, they fall um, and then they graze their legs uh, and then they sort of look up and they're, they're fine. They haven't, um, they haven't started crying or anything, but then they, they look to, at their parents to see their response. And, and um, I, I think I, I've certainly seen 
you know, some parents worried and then if they're worried, the baby seems to cry. Uh, but if, yeah. uh, if you sort of don't look worried, they seem to just get up and keep running. Yeah. And it's a, it's a delayed response of like, let me gather all the information I can. <laughs> and so they fall over and they're like, okay, is this painful? I don't know. Should I be concerned? Should I be worried? I don't know. And so they're kind of looking around to think like, how do I process this? Um, yeah, that, that's a, I, I like that example as well. And you kind of see it in clinics. Like I know before I learned all this stuff, I was starting to see in clinics who responds to treatment, who doesn't get better, uh, who has different severity levels of pain. Like low back pain is a big one for people. Someone could do something really innocent or like re like really mild form of trauma and have significant pain compared to someone who's had like a big trauma, a car crash or something, doesn't experience anything. <clears throat> and you're thinking, how is this reflective of tissue damage? And you start to think, okay, one, it's almost a little bit more of a correlation, not based on tissue damage, but on the meaning that they give it and the thoughts that they give it. There's more of a correlation regarding the context rather than tissue damage. And then also how they recover is more reflective of their their thought process rather than their um than their tissue damage and like why i say that like an example would be someone who comes in with low back pain who thinks oh, i just don't know what it is um oh, i've got this significant back pain but i just need some guidance on how to get better because i know i haven't had this before so i'm not particularly worried but um can you just like let me know what i need to do to to overcome it compared to someone who has the same level of trauma to their back and they're like, oh my God, my dad, he ha he's had back pain for years, like low back pains in my family. And my grandma had pain for years and years and it radiated down to her leg and she stopped walking. She's on crutches. Then she got into a wheelchair. Am I going to end up in a wheelchair? Like, what, what is this? What's going on? And they just freak out. And that is, what's the brain going to think? And what, what's the output of the brain going to be if you continuously feed yourself with those thoughts? it's not good for recovery. It's not good for you in the moment because you're going to be amplifying the pain and sensitizing a lot of these structures. The brain's going to think, don't move. You're going to, you know, re-enter your back, you know, just keep a really stiff brace and let's make sure that we protect this back because we need this to get better because we don't want to end up like my dad or grandparents. And as you go, as you're a physio for like a couple of years, you start to see this pattern, those who have those thoughts, First of all, their pain is more severe. And second of all, they re they rarely get better with just the normal interventions that um, that will get someone else better. Um, yep. Yeah, they're the patterns I see definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I see it time and time again as well. Um, what Like one really good example, like I, I remember seeing this um, guy who actually had a ruptured Achilles um, tendon and he, he limped in and he um, was like, oh, I just need a rub. Like I just need a massage. Like I've... I've got a bit of a tight calf um, and then he he just that's all he wanted like he just said oh it'll come good like I, I just need a massage um, uh, I'm all good like and it, it was just really wow. optimistic a bit naive about it but it's funny how um, uh, yeah his pain and his response to the injury was so at odds to um, yes so, so some of the other uh, patients that I've treated with the same same injury but it was more a case of because he didn't didn't um, I guess uh, understand 
the degree of the injury, he, he, I, I forced him to have it, um, to, to go see a specialist and, and then also, um, yeah, he was, he was in a cam boot in the end, but it took a fair bit of um, persuading. Um, but it's just funny, like, and I've had another, a few other examples of that, like someone who actually fractured their neck um, in the surf, um, like they landed on their head um, in the surf and, and he came in um, and uh, he told me how he did it and he just wanted a massage and he said it'll, it'll come good, but I, I, didn't, I didn't touch it and sent him off for an x-ray um, and then he ended up just having to have a, a, a soft collar for a brace um, for a, a couple, couple of months. But it's just, it's, it was just so, so interesting at how different degrees of pathology um, are, and their pain is, is received um, by, by people. The way I interpret that is you think because the brain's trying to protect you and you want to survive. So that's its survival mechanism. Yep. But you think if there's increased level of danger to the, to the tissues, there should be a reflective increase amount of pain. But if you have a fractured neck, <laughs> that is a huge risk. You are, you are, you know, that's something that's very, very dangerous and you should take very, very seriously. But if you fracture your neck and you're not, you don't really know it, you don't know about it. Yeah. Um, or you think, oh no, it's just a sprain. Oh yeah, it's just this. Um, it should be fine in a couple of days. You're going to be relaxed. You're going to be like, yeah, if you, um, and like that Achilles guy, like he would have like low levels of pain and like, yeah, just needs a massage. Don't worry about it. Like it'll come good in a couple of days. Like these, like you said, it's, it's naive, but you can see why someone would um, not have those same levels of pain. If someone ruptured their Achilles and they're like, oh my God, like I, I won't be able to train for my marathon. I've got this thing coming up. Like I've raised so much money for this this uh, race and now it's all going to be for nothing. People are going to get mad at me. I'm a failure. Maybe I shouldn't be a runner. All that sort of stuff. You can see how that would fuel a lot of pain signals and hinder recovery as well. Oh, I'm, I'm actually exactly that, that person. Um, like I've had... Um, I've seen them all. Oh yeah, but like with Achilles myself, um, like if the bed sheets brush against my Achilles, I jump. Or if Jeff, my wife, just lightly touches my Achilles, I jump. Because really, uh, yeah, um, it's 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 funny. Like no matter, like I, I suppose it's yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. Um, uh, but yeah, on that on that, um, I think another example that I remember, I'm not sure where I read it. Um, but there was this um, example, it might have been um, in Explained Pain, um, uh, about uh, these two labourers that um, used nail guns um, uh, as part of their job. And uh, one labourer um, uh, misfired the nail gun and um, didn't know where it went. And, uh, and then about um, two days later, they had um, a bit of a, what felt like a toothache um and so they went to the dentist um they weren't in that much pain but they just thought oh i better check this out and and they got an x-ray and and the nail was um embedded sort of up their nose oh my god yeah. and then wow. <laughs> um the other person who operated the nail gun um misfired the nail gun and it went through their boot their work boot um, so it looked like it went through, they, they saw it and it looked like it went through their foot and they were in all sorts, like they were in a lot of pain. Um, they had to go to the emergency, get morphine and, or, or pain relief. Um, and then they slowly got the boot 
or nail, nail boot taken off, nail taken out, and it and it didn't actually pierce their body. It went between their toes. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so it's like it's a great example of um, yeah, exactly sort of what you're saying. In that, like you you don't know where the nail went, and then you don't have that much pain. But then you see the nail go through your shoe. You assume it's gone through your foot, and you're in a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's to- it's totally true, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it should be clear when we talk about this as well that people tend to misinterpret the saying that it's all in their head um, because that's what we're saying. We're saying all pain comes from the brain. All pain signals come from the brain, yes. Um, is it all in your head? Well, technically it is, but a lot of people misinterpret that um, that statement. We're saying they think that they're making it up. Like if someone comes in, uh, I've seen so many people with low back pain come into my physio clinic and they're super, super frustrated because they've just been to the GP because they've had low back pain for 10 years. And the, the doctor has said that it's all in their head and they interpret that as they think I'm making it up. They think it doesn't exist. And so they come into me and say, the doctor thinks I'm making it up and uh, they think it's all in my head, but I have pain every single day. Um, I've got pain when I sit for five minutes, I've got this, 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 and then they'll rattle off a whole bunch of things. So. Um, pain is like, yes, all the signals do come from the brain. It's not to say you're making it up and we need to, when it comes to say acute pain, if you've had an injury or if you, if you had, um, you've overloaded a tendon, if we're talking to runners here, if you've overloaded a tendon, if you've overdone things and your, your Achilles or your plantar fascia is sore, we still need to pay attention to those signals. We can't just ignore them and pretend like they're not there because it's all coming from the head in the acute setting, um, say for a couple of weeks, you should really pay attention to pain signals because that really, really matters. And um, yeah, just really respect that and don't think, oh, it's just all in my head. Let me just continue running for 20 Ks on this sore plantar fascia. When we get into chronic pain, which we might talk about later in this episode, um, it's a bit of a different story, but definitely with acute pain, yes, it's coming from your head, but we still need to respect it. We still need to pay attention to it because um, there is still some sensitized um, tissues and they're still some they're undergoing some sort of reaction for whatever means might be some training errors but yeah I think we should make that clear from the get-go yeah yeah no definitely Um, the way I like to think of it is that um, say you've you know made a few training errors or you've increased your training and you're getting some kind of um, signal from you know your knees or or your or your feet that you're over overdoing it a little bit um, I get, I guess like, um, education and, and understanding why, why you've got the signal, like is really important. Um, and, and not, not, not knowing why, cause then that normalizes the signal too. So like it, it helps give you sort of a good, um, uh, I don't know, like it, it means that the signal is not heightened or, 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 uh, yeah, sensitized as well. So like, would you say like, I, I guess like we're, we're probably highlighting the need for education and, and um, to uh, like, and to sort of, uh, ha- I suppose your beliefs about the body part and what's going on is, is so important. Um, would you agree with that Brody? Yeah. yeah. I think beliefs are a good direction to take this because yeah. runners always get injured. Like they're always experiencing some level of pain. And if we're paying attention to those pain signals, and then we also have the the education of around pain and like what causes pain and 
that beliefs and context do matter in regards to how quickly you recover and the pain signals you actually have. Um, it's, it's definitely worth knowing those because let's just say, for example, you have, I uh, will continue with plantar fasciitis. Um, if you've been told that you have flat feet and that's caused your plantar fasciitis and your flat feet also cause your knee to roll in and cause your hips to drop and you, and you to fall out of alignment. This is like a very, very common um, experience that a lot of people with plantar, fasci plantar fasciitis have. They'll go to a physio, they'll go to a chiro or a um, podiatrist and they'll be like, yeah, no wonder you have plantar fasciitis. Your feet roll in, you have low arches and your foot collapses every time you step. So what you need to do is have stability shoes or have orthotics and uh, this is going to put you all in back into alignment. It's going to help, you know, stabilize the foot. It's going to limit the amount of pronation that you have. It's going to limit the, the knee collapsing in and the, the hip dropping and your back falling out of place. Um, so I'll make some adjustments. I'll, um, your hips a little bit twisted here and there. So I'll, I'll readjust your hip. I'll readjust your back and give you some orthotics and away you go. Along that whole journey, which is very, very common, people have then started to ingrain a lot of beliefs that I have collapsing feet. Uh, Overpronation causes the knees to collapse and causes the hip to drop. And this is why I'm getting injured. When in fact, if someone was just to look at their history, they've had, they've been running for 10 years. They haven't had plantar fasciitis, but they still had a collapsing foot. But what happened is they've overdone it. They've gone from running 10, or 10 Ks a week to running 20 Ks a week. And now their plantar fasciitis is sore and they've always had that collapsing arch, but they can't pin that out. They can't uh, focus on that because all the health professionals have redirected them to this new belief. Yep. And everything that I just mentioned around overpronation, foot collapsing is going to lead to injury, falls out of place, all this sort of stuff is totally not backed up by evidence at all. Like there's no evidence to show that just because you have a, flat foot that you are going to increase your likelihood of plantar fasciitis. That's not true at all. People of all foot shape do get plantar fasciitis at the same rate. They don't need necessarily orthotics. They might benefit from orthotics, but someone with plantar fasciitis might not benefit from orthotics. It's like a trial and error basis. But along this way, they've created this belief. And so let's say down the track, they run they take their orthotics out and try and run without orthotics. And the brain thinks, excuse me, what the hell are you doing? We have low feet. We have collapsing arches. We we don't want to fall out of place. Let's keep those orthotics in. And if you run without the orthotics, then who knows? You might start getting some pain signals because the brain is like, "What are you trying to do to us? Are you trying to make? Are you trying to collapse our our hip? Are you trying to roll out our knee in? Are you trying to roll our foot in? Yeah, and then and the, yeah, of the, start like emitting some plantar fasciitis. Yeah, because of those beliefs, um, like they feel threatened, like the body feels threatened and, and fearful. Like, um, yep. so like, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's such a great example because like, ten, like you said, 10 years prior to them actually having plantar fascia pain, they were the same person. Like they had the same anatomy, flat feet, and, uh, they were built the same. Um, but it, like, it's such a good example of how, um, yeah, beliefs, um, uh, 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 and misinformed sort of beliefs can influence, uh, uh, I suppose, behavior and also, um, and pain. Um, and the thing is, the thing that's really unfortunate is if I was to walk people through that experience, that 
that treatment would actually help them. Like the adjustment, the orthotics, the stability shoes, they would get better from that because there's placebo and because we're treating the actual injury itself and it, the, the body naturally just gets better anyway. And so you get better and you actually confirm that belief that your foot's collapsing in and you do need orthotics and you shouldn't be, you should be running in perfect alignment and you do need your hips adjusted because it works. And that's just a little bit of evidence to say, you know what, this therapist is probably right. And I probably do need an adjustment, you know, and I probably need these stability shoes. And that's where that belief is created. And then if they were to go away from that and not wear the orthotics, and then the plantar fasciitis comes back because <laughs> of this ingrained belief that then again confirms, oh, I actually do need my orthotics because I fall out of place and I need to go back to the orthotics and always wear the orthotics. And then again, just builds in evidence. And along the way, the brain is just like, yep, this is confirmation, confirmation, confirmation. And that's where we leave ourselves. And this is where I find a lot of runners. Yeah, I was listening to uh, the three podcasts that you did on pain science uh, on your podcast and they're really good and so I'd recommend everyone to, to have a look. Um, and one of them, um, you said statements like flat feet, uh, my hips are out, leg length discrepancy, um, my glutes don't fire, um, like statements like that um, I come across every day as a running physio as well. Um, and uh, like, how would you define those statements? Because, um, uh, yeah, I, I agreed with sort of what you're saying in the podcast. They're, they're quite disempowering. Like there's stuff that you can't like, oh, well, the, all the structural ones, you can't control that. Um, and it makes you sort of feel a bit like uh, in that victim kind of state, like you, you, you're, um, I don't know, it's kind of a negative way to view yourself. Yeah, exactly. And this is where therapists make a killing because if they've been told if they tell their clients that you've got one leg longer than the other, you just need this adjustment and come back um, if you start experiencing more pain. That is just the worst thing to do for someone because one, it's creating their belief that they have one leg longer than the other. Two, they can't do anything about it. They can't make one leg longer unless they have these adjustments in quotation marks. Um, and then if pain comes back, they have to rely on the therapist. They have to go back to the therapist for treatment. And so it's very disempowering. It's very like, it's untrue. Like all of those statements are untrue. I just, um, if we're quickly talking about like leg, leg, leg length yeah. discrepancy, I had a, I just released a blog and shows that uh, around about 90, 95% of the population have some level of leg length discrepancy. And it's usually between uh, one to five mil, some, sometimes between five to 10 mil. And that's, that's totally fine. But for runners, for them to change their biomechanics and to actually have an influence on um, injury, they need to have a leg length discrepancy of more than 20 mil, which is less than 1% of the population. So uh, easily someone can find a leg length discrepancy in anyone because that's 90% of the population. But will it affect your biomechanics? Will it cause injury? Most likely no. Um, so that's a, a myth that we can bust right now. And that's someone I, I can educate a runner on that from day dot. Yep. But sometimes they have these ingrained beliefs and things like, uh, I've been told that my hip, my glutes don't fire. That's so, so common. I hear this so, so, so commonly. And like, how are they meant to, what are they meant to do? I have runners that are trying to consciously fire their glutes while they're running or consciously trying to fire their glutes while they're doing a certain exercise. And it creates a, a lot of hypervigilance, like this really like 
high attention to this area, which isn't helpful. Like if you just keep things functional, you build up some strength. Yeah, your glutes might be a bit weak and unable to tolerate the loads that you're running through because there's a lot of load that goes through the hips. It's a big force generated muscle. And we do might need to work on a bit of strength in order to build up your level of tolerance for what you want it to do. But that's a total different conversation and phrasing it in a more empowering way than your glutes don't switch on and we need to find a way to try and switch your glutes on. And people are like, I'm running, but I don't feel my glutes when I'm running. Like they're switched off. I, I just don't feel anything. If someone has that belief and someone's trying to run with trying to switch on their glutes, it's not going to be good for them in the long run. And so trying to make sure we're communicating with the right language, the right empowering language and saying, okay, these are the things you can do for yourself. This is what the evidence shows. Um, if you do experience this pain, this is what we need to work on. These are the activities that you can do. We're taking the power back onto the runner. We're educating them with the right information. We're giving them the right amount of like um, self-managed strategies and that's going to allow them to, you know, take control of their own recovery. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And, and same thing, like leg length discrepancy, um, like that's always been there. Um, like that, that just yeah, hasn't exactly. magically happened overnight. <laughs> Um, yep. so you've lived with it your whole life. Um, uh, and, and the other one that I often hear is scoliosis and, um, like not many people, I don't, no one's got a perfect spine. Um, uh, and so everyone's got, you know, a degree of, you know, I don't know, like some kind of, well, there's a lot of the population that have some kind of like small scoliosis or, 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 or some, Everyone's got wrinkle, like wrinkles and freckles on the inside, I guess. And um, I think <laughs> yeah. that's a good way to think of it. And uh, yeah, um, I, I think we become a bit, bit too focused on, on aspects that, um, you know. Uh, we want to yeah. find something, don't we, as yeah. therapists? Like we yeah. want, like sometimes physio can be really boring if they've just had a, like a, an increase in their mileage and we just need to re-tinker their running program and then they're good from, from there. That's really simple, really effective, but really boring. And a lot of therapists are trying to be like, okay, how can I get some really good buy-in from this um, client? How can I um, establish my importance? How can I do this? And we just look for things. Like I know I've been guilty of this when I first graduated doing a lot of um, <clears throat> like looking at someone's shoulder height and seeing that there's one shoulder slightly higher than the other, looking at their shoulder blade, their scapula and seeing their movements like, oh, this one's a little bit depressed. This one's a little bit tilted. This one's a little bit this, this, this. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of scoliosis here. Yeah, you have one hip higher than the other and you, you'll find something in anyone and you can easily make a connection to what you find to why they have this pain and present with this and it gets a lot of buy-in they're like oh i never knew that uh what do i need to do and like they instantly get this buy-in but it's often unhelpful and when you think about it just one centimeter higher here and there a couple of mils difference your body's going to adapt to that difference your body's always had that difference uh your body's going to get stronger or yeah like i said adapt to that variation in um your posture it's not going to be a cause of your injury unless it's significant, unless, like I said, if you have a leg length discrepancy of more than 20 mil, or if you have a real change in biomechanics where you're kind of limping because of some sort of variation. But yeah, if you're, if you're looking for millimeters and centimeter difference, 
you're going to find something. And yeah, I guess that's just creating our level of importance. Cause I remember being a therapist and as soon as I'd find something that would be out of line or that would be, you know, timing wrong or in some imbalance, I'd be like, yes, I found this. Now, how do I link this to the pain? How do I make sense of this? Um, that's just what we learn. And the fact that like when we start treating them, they get better and that confirms our own bias of yes, this like shoulder imbalance, this like one shoulder higher than the other is working. So when you see that next time with another client, you're like, yeah, this is it. And you start to follow these patterns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely. It's, and then um, on your podcast, another, another thing that I wanted to raise was uh, you mentioned um, the power of placebo and uh, you men mentioned it in reference to acupuncture and how um, the success of acupuncture um, can be contextual as well. And um, uh, yeah, Brody, do you mind um, yeah, talking about that example? Because I, I thought that was a really interesting example um, uh, for listeners to, to hear as well. Sure. Um, like we can talk about placebo all day and like some of the stuff we've mentioned now is <clears throat> very placebo driven. Like if someone wants to say you have plantar fasciitis, your foot rolls in, you need to align yourself. You need these orthotics. As soon as you're being told, oh, Jesus, this is serious. Oh, this will really help. Yes, it makes sense that it will realign everything. Um, and then they start feeling better. A lot of that is placebo. A lot of the stuff we do is placebo, but that's not to say that's not unhelpful, definitely like massage, like um, dry needling, acupuncture, all that sort of stuff. There's a place for that because people feel better in the short term, but that's where we, it needs to stay. It needs to stay, stay as a short-term modality or a short-term approach. Um, placebo will, the impact of placebo will depend on context and will depend on the past beliefs of the person. If someone comes in to me, like my dad, my dad's very skeptical of everything and he just doesn't pay attention to anything. And because I'm his son, like the stuff that I deliver, he just like shakes off. I've done dry <laughs> needling on his elbow because I had people with tennis elbow in my clinic and I would, um, I do dry needling and they'd get better. Like they'd reduce symptoms. And then my dad has, um, he plays golf, but he got tennis elbow from playing golf. And I'm like, oh, let me do some dry needling on you. He's like, oh yeah, whatever. Um, I suppose give it a go. And it just didn't get him better because he just didn't believe it. He just like from the get go, he it was never going to get him better, even if it was doing something. Um, and it depends on context. It depends on people's beliefs. And I'll see if I'll get this right. So um, within the book, they use the example of acupuncture and how it mattered in context. And they said that acupuncture is believed to work best if it's done in China by uh, a Chinese man on a non-Chinese female. So they're in China, they're, they're having this acupuncture done compared to like that's context compared to if they do the exact same acupuncture by, by someone who isn't Chinese outside of China by, and the patient is someone from Chinese, uh, from China. So context is completely different. Uh, the the method of acupuncture is exactly the same, except we've just changed the environment, we've changed the client, we've changed the beliefs, we've changed everything along there. And so it's believed that uh, the first example is going to, the, the effect of acupuncture is going to work a lot better than the second. We're doing the exact same thing, but just context has changed. And something can be very similar to 
if you go to say a shoe store or like a podiatry clinic and you walk in and everything's looking very clinical, you've got like pictures of orthotics, you've got like a photo that's side by side photo of someone without an orthotic and their Achilles is arching and bowing compared to that side comparison of someone who has an orthotic and everything's magically aligning. Um, you get put on like a scan, which has a look at all your metrics and you, you get that pressure pad um, gate scan analysis and like everything's really digital. Everything's like all the effects on the screen is looking really um, scientific. And they say like, they go through your results and say, this is what all this shows. Your big toes doing this, your heels doing this. Um, this all makes sense. You need orthotics. Compared, like, compare that experience to someone who uh, is getting foot pain and their mate goes, oh, you should probably get orthotics. I don't know, might, might help. What's the, <laughs> the two experiences? They're still getting the orthotic. The orthotic is still being put in their, their shoe. The effect is still going to be the same, but the belief and the experience and uh, yeah, the context is completely different. They're going to get better if they have that podiatry experience compared to if they have that second experience. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And um, it's good for everyone to hear hear that, um, that that can have such an influence on, on, on pain. Um, I wanted to move on to say chronic pain now. Um, I've got um, a few patients that I've treated for a, a number of years. Um, I, won't, I won't say this particular lady's name, but um, she won't mind me raising her, her case. Um, but she's had um, chronic neck and back pain for, for five, five or so years. And I've tried every single exercise there is um, and every, every single treatment there is um and uh, uh, none of them work um recently this year like the last six months um we worked out that a real passion of hers was music and uh and so we tried um sound therapy which um sounds very alternative and different but it actually helps her pain so it, it um uh she feels 50 percent better after listening to some music um, and some sounds um, for half an hour each day. Um, and uh, the exact uh, reason um, behind it, I'm not exactly sure, but I, um, I think she just feels calm and more relaxed. She's quite an anxious lady um, and um, she, she, she has depression and, and a few things have gone on in her life. She's um, uh, like that and and um yeah it's just been it's been a real interesting journey for both of us um as a therapist and a, and a patient um so like i i think it speaks volumes in terms of everyone's so different and i've treated a lot of people with neck and back pain but what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next and uh yeah in terms of chronic pain brody uh do you mind um yeah talking and trying to help people understand the complexities, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, so when it comes to chronic pain, which is like pain that's persisted for, you know, beyond 12 months, the sensitivities, like everything has, we can assume that most things have healed. A lot of people think that because they have chronic pain, their injury just hasn't healed yet. But most tissues in the body heal within a couple of weeks. Definitely most tissues heal within a couple of months, depending on their blood supply, how much blood they get for um, for their recovery rate. 
But we also know that pain persists well beyond the, the months that it takes to heal. We know that people have chronic pain for years and years and years, and sometimes it gets worse, and it's often linked to um, certain personality types or certain um, stories that people have told themselves, past experiences, like we talked about with that lady who's had a grandma who's in a wheelchair because of back pain, these sort of things. Um, I like to describe like in the explain pain book as well the situation of like a tool shed and so you've got this tool shed in your backyard and every now and then a neighbor would start stealing some tools from your tool shed so you want to um you want to make sure you want to defend the tool shed so what you do you put a lock on um you close shut off all the windows but then you're like oh mate is that is that good enough and so or like as the days go on you start putting in some like motion sensors and you're like, maybe that will do the trick. And you start like fortifying the windows and you're like, yeah, maybe that will do the trick. Oh, does it really do the trick though? And so you start putting in these like, um, not only motion sensors, but like heat sensors and like um, these like trip wires and like everything, you start like fortifying the shed. And so you can just imagine that like, is it doing the job it's meant to? Yes, it definitely is. Is it over excessive? Most arguably, yes. Um, and then you can just imagine like, like a cartoon, like this little leaf fall from the tree and just like land on the shed and then all these alarms go off and like all these all these signals start like <laughs> booming and is it doing the trick? Well, it's defending the shed. Like you've put them all there for a reason, but it's probably a bit over the top. The same thing can be said for pain and I'll, I'll relate this, in a second, this analogy in a second. So if you do have pain signals or if you do have um, an injury, the brain can start to think, okay, let me protect this area and... Uh, wait for it to heal and so it does its job it starts healing and it's like if we start overdoing it and overthinking it and uh, it's met with a lot of anxiety and a lot of fears and a lot of concerns you start to think oh let's maybe not do a run like a run might be bad or a run might flare it up oh you know maybe just that walk or maybe just going out for dinner or just like sitting for too long maybe that will stir things up Oh, what about if I do this? Oh, what about if my mate wants me to go play basketball? Oh, what about if this race comes up that I can't prepare for? And you just constantly think about these, these fears. You're constantly fortifying and reinforcing that, those pain signals and that messaging. And so what happens is that injury becomes super sensitive. Like the, the tissues become super sensitized and everything is just on a knife's edge and you're treating it super carefully and um, you're constantly being treated with these thoughts of don't move it, we need to protect it, let's, let's avoid everything that increases pain. And then if you so happen to do something, like you have to move house or something happens, everything's going to flare up and everything's going to increase pain and it's going to be um, super flared up. It's going to take days and days to settle down just because you've treated that hypersensitivity and you've had these years and years of treating this hypersensitivity, you've overdone it and the brain's like overthought it and become super, super sensitized to that belief and that thought and that injury area. Same thing with the shed. We've, we've gone over the top and with these people with chronic pain, we have to actually, you know, treat them totally differently because we can't just treat them like a normal plantar fasciitis. It's going to, it's not going to work. We need to address their beliefs. We need to address their concerns. We need to address their anxiety. We need to start doing things they enjoy and they look forward to and things that a process that they will start enjoying and that, fits perfectly with that lady talking about the music and doing yeah. something that she enjoys, something she finds really nice, something she finds soothing, something that she will listen to and not play concerns and not re repeat a lot of stories that's in her head 
And if we combine that with therapy, then it can start to settle down her beliefs and start to have a little bit of confirmation. Actually, maybe I can do this. Actually, maybe it's okay if I do this and like encouraging some sort of um, feed forward messaging that it is okay to start doing these uh, messages. But I often see people with, um, like when I do my online physio, most people that I see have had pain for a couple of years. They've either had high hamstring tendinopathy for on average around about three years are the ones that I see or plantar fasciitis on average for about two years. And so I have to treat them completely differently. And I often explain to them, okay, do you have any history of anxiety or depression? Because that's super, super linked. Because as soon as something's injured, they're going to start that process of becoming hyper aware and hypersensitive, hypervigilant to this area, because that's just what they do. That's what they do. They have that depression, anxiety kind of links to that. And they're already well on their way for chronic pain, even before anything's happened. Um, so often I ask these questions, I ask, what beliefs do you have? What, what have you been told in the past compared with this injury? And I had a lady who had, um, a tib post tendinopathy for five years and year one of her having that injury, a, a surgeon told her that she's going to need surgery. No matter what she does, she's going to have to come back because she's going to need surgery because tendons don't heal. That's the belief that she has been told that no wonder it hasn't got better since. And constantly through years and years and years, she's like, it's not going to heal. Everything I do is going to co- cause more damage. It's going to keep doing more and more damage until I require surgery because that's what the surgeon said. That's what tendons do. They don't heal. And it's totally untrue. And that's the belief she co- she gave herself. And that's what she's been feeding to her brain the entire time. And no wonder she's had this tendon pain for five years. Um, so it's a very complex very sensitive topic that uh, we have to try and communicate with our clients. Um, Sometimes not even just explaining that, but just providing the right education and telling them to start doing things they enjoy or start addressing their anxious beliefs can be enough. But sometimes if we delve into this topic of chronic pain, people can take it the other way and get really defensive and get really upset. Um, So the way we communicate needs to be really effective, which I'm still working on. It's a a sensitive topic for me as well, but um, yeah, I think we're doing some good if we start treating them for chronic pain instead of just treating the injury and thinking we're trying to treat them like acute pain, like we would any other injury. These this population definitely needs a different approach. Yeah, it's funny because um, yeah, ever since I've been um, with this lady that I raised, um, been doing more the sound therapy and then also addressing her negative thoughts because it's so funny. We always joke that if there was a fly on the wall, like on this voice of optimism and she's sort of uh, a bit pessimistic, but like um, everything she says, it's always like, oh, I can't do that. Or this, 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 this is what happened. Like, like a bad thing happened um, this week. And, and she's always focusing on that. So we've really tried to address all like these automatic negative thoughts that she has and, and tried to get her to challenge the way she thinks about certain topics and, and, and when she does think a bit negatively go, Oh, hang on. How can I, how can I think about this a little bit differently? And, and since she's been doing that, like, obviously like the way we think and, and our beliefs are so steadfast, um, especially when we're thought that way for a long time. So you can't, you can't make, you know, like, like changes are slow, just like anything and, and gradual, especially if you persist. And, but yeah, she, she's definitely a bit more, a bit more, um, chirpy and optimistic um yeah over the past past um yeah six months um since we've sort of ch- tra- changed the 
the way that we've sort of approached it. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been interesting, um, and I, I certainly see that in the clinic when I see someone who's just full of optimism and and really focusing on the positive aspects. Um, and that's that's um, sometimes hard to do, isn't it? But when when you see someone who just naturally is inclined to do that, um, you're like, okay, this this person's going to make the best of their recovery for sure. Yeah, um, those who are happy to change their beliefs is like it's really it's so refreshing, but it's very, very uncommon. It's hard to do like beliefs are beliefs that yeah. there's something, you know, to be true. That is a belief. And to try and change that and convince people otherwise takes a lot of work and you could work like really, really hard talking to someone. But again, if they see someone with higher authority, if they see a GP or a surgeon, all of a sudden we're discard everything, all the work that we've done, like their opinion just is held in a higher regard, which is pretty unfortunate. But yeah, I, I often have, sessions where I'm just educating the person the entire time. But then afterwards, I'm like, okay, do you have any questions? And they're like, oh, so what you're saying is my foot's collapsing in and I need support and I need orthotics. And I'm like, no, what have we been talking about for the last like hour? Um, so it's very hard. It's very hard to get across and people just often hear what they want to be, what they want to hear. And uh, yeah, it's, it's human nature. It's the way of life. And um, I guess we need to continue developing our communication skills. We need to continue like changing our strategies for the right person. Someone might just like adopt on the fly and be really um, proactive with the messages we take on board. Others might not. Yeah. It's, it's always like, I've, I've had so many of those cases, Brody as well, where you're like, Oh, haven't I been telling you this for the last month that you still keep yeah. um, having the same belief or the, the same question. Like it, it seems, um, but it's funny what, what messages some people do remember and, and what, what, um, what things some people do, do remember, like, um, take on board. Like I had a patient a couple of weeks ago and I was really surprised that he remembered a certain, um, story that I said and, and, uh, and, uh, quote, and it's funny the little things that do stick. Um, but then you're like, oh, look for some, some, but yeah, it shows that we're all individual and we're all a, a summation of like our life experiences. And, um, uh, and that's what makes it so hard, like just to have a re resonating, um, resonating, uh, conversation with that individual. So you really do have to get to know the, know the patient in front of you, um, to, to have that far reaching impact, don't you? Yeah. It's a tough approach and like, it's a, it's a tough intervention for a lot of people, but it's, so we have to do otherwise people don't, just don't get better especially when it comes to chronic pain they could go to a therapist and therapist and just jump from doctor to doctor and doctor and say i've had pain i've had back pain for 10 years nothing's worked what can i do and they just keep going through the same formula of you know you need to strengthen your core or you need to you know i don't know um work on exercise you need to work on losing weight but nothing really works because they haven't addressed the chronic nature side of things and there's also another conversation to be had. Sometimes people, um, they've built their identity around, I have low back pain. This is me. Like I'm the person with low back pain. And sometimes they get significance from it as well. Sometimes the feeling sorry for them, like it's sometimes, I don't know, just creates this identity and it creates a need. It creates reassurance. It creates like a lot of things. And that's definitely ingrained to someone's being it's going to be very hard to turn them around because they're getting significance from that low back pain they're going to continue developing that because they're getting what they need from it even though it's not serving them 
Yeah, no, spot on. Um, that's impossible. Like, I, I, we can delve into that, like, for another two hours, but yeah. that's just a, another topic maybe for another day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, that's been about an hour, and um, I'm mindful um, that you've got to, got to kick off. Um, but, Brody, thanks so much for the chat. If you were to come up with a little bit of a, a summary of the key points that you really want runners to take away from the chat today, um, what what would they be? So keep in mind all pain is generated from the brain. That's number one. I think that the, the level of pain, the severity that you feel, depends on context. So it depends on the thoughts that you give it. It depends on the, the future outcome that you're constantly thinking about with that pain. Um, Keep that in mind. Still pay attention to the, the acute pain signals. It's very, very important to pay attention to pain, especially in the early days. That's super, super important. So that's number one. Number two would be the belief that you've held on to for a long period of time. Do you think that running is bad for your knees? Have you been told that? Do you think that having flat feet means it'll increase your risk of injury? Do you think that you need orthotics? All of these things just maybe self-reflect a little bit and think of what beliefs you've been told in the past, what beliefs you've created. I know in my past, as soon as I was to try and jump from a half marathon to a full marathon, I'd get injured. Really, it's because I either overtrain or under-recover. That's in reality. But I kept telling myself that I'm just not built for marathons. I'm, I've got a body that is, isn't built for marathons. That's the belief I gave myself. And so um, I now know that's not true and I just need to train smarter. So have a self-reflection, see what, see what that come, uh, what comes up for you and what experiences you've had that's like convinced you of something that's maybe unhelpful. So that's my second one. My third one would probably be around chronic pain and knowing that if you have had an injury, maybe you've had Achilles or high hamstring tendinopathy or something for years and years and years, try and think about um, the thoughts process, try and think about like what we just um, summarized to finish up the episode, try and think about if there is any anxious worries, if there's anything, any feed forward things that you're um, thinking that might be creating hypervigilance or might be creating this like really sensitized state and start slowly getting back into it and approaching things differently than if someone was just to have an acute episode of your current condition. So I guess that, that would be my key summarized takeaway points. That's fantastic. Um, Brody. If someone was to reach out to you, where would they find you? Because um, obviously you run that the great podcast, the Run Smarter podcast, and um, you're online with a breakthrough running clinic. Um, but yeah, where, where can um, runners reach out to you if they say wanted an appointment or to ask further questions? Yeah, I always say for, for people who want to start delving into this sort of thing, always head to the podcast as number one, try and find the answers yourself there because you're empowering your own um, journey and you're building on this knowledge yourself. So definitely head to the podcast, definitely have a listen to the first uh, 10 episodes of the podcast that covers 10 lessons, 10 universal principles that every runner needs to know when it comes to injury. So look at those first 10 and then start scrolling through the episodes to see what find you find relevant. So do that, invest in um, some knowledge, like learn yourself. If you then require additional, um, maybe one-on-one -on -one work or something, you can either reach out to me on social media. Um, so my Instagram is runsmarterseries and that people usually just funnel into the 
podcast Facebook group and then they just reach out to me there. But um, if they do want to uh, go ahead with some online physio, then breakthroughrunning.physio is my website and they can have a look to see if uh, online physio is appropriate for them and we can have that discussion. Yeah, Rody, thanks once again. I love what you stand for. You're um, putting so much good information out there. You're breaking down a lot of myths and uh, I love um, how you view knowledge as power. Yeah, it's, it's a good message. Um, I have this mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. And so that's um, this is only just a small part of it. But yeah, I'm blessed to be on this mission and blessed that people like you can can have me on so I can have an, an avenue rather than just my own podcast to spread the word. Brilliant. Thanks, mate. You're welcome, Dane.